You'll find Cafe Gallery in Southwark Park. It's near the centre, by the pond and the walled garden. Other parts of the park are more open, bordered by trees and paths. In the summer, people come and do what people do in parks. They come to talk and eat together. On the 20th of July, the Woodmill, a studio collective based in Bermondsey, staged a picnic for Friedrich Kittler as part of the exhibition Wendell, Open Your Door. On the same day, Woodmill artist Richard Side staged Park Acoustics, a series of performances and screenings in and around the gallery. Throughout the afternoon, pasta was prepared and served. Acoustic and audio works were cooked and consumed. People came. Coming up on the 11th episode of Car, Stuart Middleton cooks the books Jamie Oliver style, and later, Ang Harrod Williams whips up a Bacardi breezer, refinished with Enrico Malatesta's hand rolled acoustic improvisation to cleanse the palate. For a while there was a plan for a stenographer to attend the Kittler picnic, but that document was not produced. Instead we have this one, which is probably no less easy to understand. This is a record and a response to an event, a Kittler picnic, for you to consume, swallow, digest, enjoy. Stuart Middleton and Beth Collar are preparing the pasta. 600 grams Tipo double zero flour. In Italy it's called farina di grano, terreno, which means tender or soft flour. Six large free-range eggs. Some of it will be dark grey, cut in strips for kind of type, or wide sheets for book covers. The rest of it will be paler, pasta-coloured, for the pages. Place the flour on a board or in a bowl. Make a well in the centre and crack the eggs into it. Beat the eggs with a fork until smooth, using the tips of your fingers. Mix the eggs with the flour, incorporating a little at a time until everything is combined. Knead the pieces of dough together. With a bit of work and some love and attention, they'll all bind together and give you one big, smooth lump of dough. Beth asks if she should add another packet of squid ink to the pasta dough. How many are in there? asks Stuart. Three, she replies. Yeah, we all say. The dough is currently grey-beige. Four packets of squid ink go in, turning the dough almost black. Ang Harrod is preparing the pesto in the gallery's kitchen. 
mixing together large quantities of basil, cashews, garlic, hard Italian cheese and lemon juice in a food processor. More lemon, I reckon, says Stuart, after tasting the green paste. How many lemons are left? Two, she replies. Put it all in, he says. Anghara disappears. When she returns, the pesto is ready. Mmm, yeah. Everyone agrees. More lemon was a good idea. I used one and a half, she says, quietly, to me, so Stuart doesn't hear. I imagine that last half is in the bin, hidden in the rubbish. What does it mean for artists to stage a meal? Historically, food has been a backdrop to performance. I'm thinking of Caroline Gooden's Food in New York, founded in 1970, where artists served up inedible delights on a Friday night. Or Daniel Spoeri's Eat Art, inaugurated in Dusseldorf, 1968. Food is part of the mythology of this historical moment. Gordon Matter Clark, a fixture at food, cooked a whole pig under the Brooklyn Bridge and served 500 attendees pork sandwiches at a group show in 1971. Spoyeri made snare paintings, fixing down dishes and glasses, the leftovers of actual meals fixing down individual desires to the shared, collected table and displaying them on walls turned up like a painting. Cooking and eating, performing and talking, watching. They're communal activities. Stuart built the preparation table this morning following instructions sent by Sam Porritt. They read like another recipe. Black or white plumbers tape to seal the gap between the plexiglass and wood. Note the three sections transition gradually into each other. A. Salt and sugar, bottom and on top. Old shoes assorted. Salt and sugar sprinkled on top. Section B. Hair, human. Plastic feuds, in brackets, various. Coins, 1p and 2p pieces, in brackets, scattered. Section C. Dirt, bottom and on top. Pages torn from porn mags of men and women, heads removed, pages crumpled. Sun cream squirted on magazine pages, perfumed. Stuart and Beth draw lengths of pasta down the preparation table, which is now so covered in flour you can't see down through the perspex and into Porrit's horrid, inedible concoctions anymore. Later, I will search for sound recordings of pasta boiling and find only horror movie effects. Raw shells crushed under a towel stands in for bones crunching, or, when slowed down, a neck being quickly snapped, downloaded 18,885 times. Cooked rigatoni and sauce sounds like a zombie feasting on human flesh when stirred with a spoon. I think of blood-curdling, like cake mixture.
Richard Sides, who's organised Park Acoustics, introduces a film by an artist with an American accent and an American name, Lance Wakeling. The film finishes and Ang Harrod enters. She speaks from the doorway. Does anyone have an iPhone? It's quiet in the room. The screen is off. Everyone is kind of looking at each other. Does anyone have an iPhone? She asks again, like no one here has an iPhone. A man shyly offers up his iPhone to her. What's your number? She asks. Oh, he says. Actually, it doesn't have any signal. It's hard to participate when you don't really know what's going on. And an iPhone is an iPhone. But it's okay. Annie has an iPhone. And she doesn't mind giving Ang Howard her number. But then again, they already know each other. Ang Harrod takes Annie's number and leaves the gallery. Almost immediately, Annie's iPhone starts ringing. Can you hear me? Ang Harrod says. But her voice is small until Annie turns on speakerphone. Can you hear me? She says again. We can. And then she is talking. She is telling us she's an observer and a custodian. I am witness to obscure rites of passage, first times and crawling wasters. Without judgment, I observe. She describes a scene, one familiar to her. She's seen it all. I have seen all the boy racers, rolling blunts, spliffs, zoots, smoking bowls, well-crafted waterfalls and homemade bongs. These boy men have come in several different guises, and they all seek the same prolonged end results, a woolly escape. Collectively, they explore the limits of their collective consciousness. She tells us she wants to talk about something, or someone. Sometimes there is a girl. She wants to talk about this girl. The teenage introvert, awkward and often embarrassingly unaware of the rules of engagement. The girl is one of a number. They crowd around benches, rarely rotating the seating arrangements. One or two are always left to stand, arms crossed, holding their developing bodies. But she is also different, particular, this girl. Missing out on the flirtatious masterclasses of many of her friends, she lacked the instinctive tools necessary for the difficult transition from girl to woman. She wasn't born ready to live. It sounds to me like she's walking quite fast, like she's walking away and she's a bit nervous. She's in public, in a park. She's speaking into a phone, reading from a piece of paper. She's alone. Who's looking at her? Is anyone looking at her? Maybe she's lying down or crouching. Maybe she's hiding. Maybe she's thirsty. One evening in March, she stands next to the congregation on the bench. She holds a glass bottle, handed to her from within a plastic bag. The contents of the bottle is an off-white, dense, opaque liquid, like a cloudy lemonade, she thinks. The bottle has two glossy paper labels, 
one around the neck and the other on the main body. Crowning the top of the bottle is a decorated steel serrated cap. As unceremoniously as she was handed the bottle by her friend Carmel, she is handed the bottle opener. She envies some of the other girls' proficiency at popping the caps off the bottle tops with the bottoms of lighters. The flimsy metallic apparatus shakes in her hand and suddenly the bottle is open. She hesitates as it hovers close to her nose. The strangely flowery scent of artificial flavouring holding her there for a moment. Time slows down. She raises the bottle to her face with her right hand. The zingy fizz momentarily stings her tongue. She pulls the liquid, preparing to swallow, simultaneously breathing in the lemon aroma as it slides from her tongue and onto her throat. By now, there is the presence of a sticky film that covers her skin and mixed in the cocktail is the salt flavour timidly gathered from the corners of her mouth. The aftertaste prompts her to meditate on the sweet chemical zingy notes. She enjoys the inauthentic taste, the false flavours of sweets and soft drinks becoming increasingly palatable to her as she becomes a teenager. It's like nothing else. Her limited life experience hasn't enabled her vocabulary the reach to describe the sensations. Her excitement is palpable, but an aloof social equilibrium must be maintained. There was a choice of lemon, lime, apple, Jamaican passion, pomegranate, peach, pineapple, ruby grapefruit, orange, blackberry, watermelon, cranberry, coconut, raspberry, blueberry, strawberry, mango, chocolate and pina colada. Angara dens the call and everyone claps because that's what everyone does after a performance even if the performer is not present unable to take a bow Outside, I'm offered a Bacardi breezer I read the words off the label a refreshing blend of alcohol Bacardi rum fruit flavours and sparkling water Mine is pineapple, a dark kind of yellow. There is nothing real about it. A guy called Enrico Malatesta sits at a symbol inside Café Gallery. It's got a bit cold outside and darker. For most of the afternoon, various artists working in sound have performed. Noise emitted from bushes outside. All the inputs and outputs displaced. And now it's Enrico's turn. Enrico Malatesta uses everyday objects in his compositions, a violin bow, a paper cup. 
responding to a spectrum of sonic effects. He rocks gently, forwards and backwards, moving with whatever object he's using. The performance is making the sound, which happens between so-called musical instrument and so-called everyday object. It's like he's not playing, he's causing, he's holding it together and intervening through touch. Listening to what seems like impossible sounds, I think about what food would taste like if you ate it off a cymbal, and then I look over to my right. The monitor and in an installation by Richard Sides is still playing. A handheld camera is directed at his own face. He zooms in unsteadily, but his expression stays the same. His face gets bigger, but doesn't feel any less close. It's like the mechanical zoom is revealing less of his face. His eyes staring blankly into the video camera. Across the room, Richard is filming Enrico's performance. I'm aware that I'm in shot. I'm aware that Richard is filming me watching the video of his own face. Enrico finishes his performance and looks up and shrugs a little like it was no big deal. The picnic is over. We've gone and autumn approaches. Friedrich Kittler is often called a German media theorist. He expressed his ideas about the determining nature of technology in gramophone, typewriter, film. These devices are not extensions of man, as Marshall McLuhan had once argued. They do not exist out of human desire for them. We have to adapt to them, to their modes of writing, recording and speaking. Computer technology provides a hardware whose efficiency itself earns the name software compatibility, he wrote. It is then, in contrast to all the current theories, which have only pictured technology as a prosthesis or tool, an inevitability. I'd like to think we weren't talking at all. We were enacting, swallowing, digesting, desiring, consuming feeling our longing as our own. We are technological pagans, technology subjects. My inexhaustible desire evidences technological agency. 
I swallow and absorb without ever feeling full. My stomach is empty. I take that first bite again and again. It's a kind of indigestion for pleasure seekers. Car is produced by Tom Howard, Paddy Langley, Naomi Pierce, and me, Alice Hattrick. To find out more, visit www.listentocar.co.uk. Car. Considering other ideas.